In continuing our uh, series this summer on the Minor Prophets, we are reading today from a little-known, rarely-read prophet by the name of Nahum, whom a lot of people have never even heard of. But he is indeed a prophet, minor one, but a prophet, and he's in the Bible. And today, we're going to be reading from his prophetic book, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Before we read this, let's pause for a moment in prayer. Good and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundant gifts that you have given us. We thank you today, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Word, for these words of Scripture written by the apostles and the prophets, Lord, those who have been appointed by you to hear your Holy Spirit and record those words down for posterity that one day we may read and hear your Word as well. Father, may we read this with open minds and open hearts to receive your instruction. But most of all, Lord, may the Holy Spirit that inspired these words move in us today, that it would inspire us and teach us and instruct us also. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is from the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Listen now to the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. That with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you come one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You know, normally when we think of getting older, we don't really count it like a real big blessing to get older. And normally we talk about older, we talk about all the just kind of the bad things that happens, getting older, you know, getting the gray hair, getting the bad back, the, the sore joints, the loss of energy. But you know, there is a great blessing to getting older. There is. That's right. There he's like, yes, yes, don't forget that part. There, is a, there are a lot of great unexpected blessings, but some great blessings to getting older. And one of the unexpected blessings I found in getting older, and especially in having kids, is the blessing of finally understanding my parents. <laughs> I mean, and I don't, without getting older, and I don't even know, you probably need kids, but maybe not, but at least getting older, you can't understand your parents unless you get older. Until either you become a head of a household or even more, you know, head of a family of children to truly understand your parents. Because without getting older, without that blessing, they remain a complete mystery to us. I mean, for example, there are things that my dad did that I never understood. Just made no sense to me. Until I got older, had a house of myself and kids of my own. For instance, the thermostat. Right? My dad was just so obsessive about the thermostat, about keeping it right on this, this level place. And, and, and as a kid, I'm looking like, we can be so comfortable in here. You know, but you got us miserable. We're sweating in the summertime, and we're freezing in the wintertime. I'm like, Dad, why are you doing this? And one day, I got a house of my own. And I thought, I'll set the thermostat wherever I want to set the thermostat. I did that for one month. Because then I got the bill. And I'm like, oh. That's why he did that. Same thing about the lights. You know, as a kid, I just, I thought having a house fully illuminated was great. It was so happy. I don't care if I was in a room or not. Have the lights on. Today, as the payer of the bills, some nights, all I do is walk around cutting lights off. That's all I do all night long, cutting lights off behind my kids. My dad's obsession with my sugar intake. Another thing I understood later on. Understanding that there are severe consequences to uninhibited intake of sugar. But of all the things that I didn't understand and hated about my parents growing up was the discipline. The discipline. I hated the discipline. And it made no sense to me. And there were some times, I swear to you, my parents loved it. They loved to discipline me. They loved to punish me. It was just their idea of a great time was to take away my good time. And there were some times I went even so far as to accuse my parents of not loving me. I don't think you really love me. Or if you really love me, then. And I know we've probably all said it to our parents. And if you're parents, you've probably all heard it from your kids. If you really love me, then. See, to my childhood brain, love equaled nice. That's what love was. If you loved me, you would be nice to me. If you're nice to me, that means you love me. But sometimes, Mom and Dad, you're being mean to me. You're not being nice at all. And to, to my kid brain, it was hard to recognize my parents when they disciplined me. And sometimes when I felt they were the meanest to me, they were, in fact, being the most loving. 
My understanding just simply wasn't there yet. It took a little bit of maturity for me to understand that. It took some growth. It took me from being able to experience love, both good love and lots of bad love, to be able to recognize what true love was. Now, still as an adult, I'm talking to you from the far side of my 40s. There's still, I have to admit, a lot I don't understand about love. In a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just a student on this wonderful concept about love. And as much as I didn't understand then, from a child becoming an adult and a parent, there's still so much I don't understand. And just as there is this this giant gulf and separation between the way a child understands love and an adult understands love, we have to think there's just as big a separation between how we human beings understand love, no matter how old we are, to how God understands love. And His understanding of love being so much greater than anything that we can possibly grasp. And our understanding, or rather our misunderstanding of God's love gets so great sometimes we also accuse Him of not being loving. Unbelievers like to do it all the time. If God was really a loving God, then fill in the blank. But I think all of us have probably done it too. All of us probably in our prayer have questioned, God, do you really love me? I mean, maybe in moments of pain or probably in frustration or difficulty. We've looked up and said, God, do you, do you really love me? Because if you really love me, fill in the blank there. But sometimes our biggest misunderstanding about God's love is the relationship between God's love and his demand for our righteousness. God's love and His demand for our righteousness. As in, we have a hard time specifically understanding that God's and His love is going to demand that we are righteous people. Now, I've just thrown out a term to you that I believe in our 21st century thinking is a bit of a loaded term. Righteous. Righteousness. Usually when we hear it, it's it's, it's actually a bad word because today when we hear the word righteous or righteousness, it's prefaced by the self, as in we use it to describe self-righteous or self-righteousness. Well, I'm using the term in a little older sense, righteous as just meaning doing right, being moral people, obeying God's command, being good people living the right kind of life, doing the right thing. This is what God means by righteousness. And usually when we think of God's demand for righteousness, that's part of that judgmental nature of God, that angry part, the jealous God, the smiting God, the the punishing God. We may be surprised to find out that God's demand for righteousness It's a part of his love. God's demand that you, that me, that all of us 
his children, and even those who have not come to know him yet. His demand that we are righteous is a part of his love. Now last week, y'all may remember that uh, our passage and our sermon was about the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the great enemy to Israel. And we read from the prophet Jonah, and in the story of Jonah, God sends his prophet to this enemy city of Nineveh to preach to them salvation and mercy. And we learned through that that God does not consider anybody enemy. That's not how he looks at us. He sees us as children of God, and we also should see each other as children of God and not enemy. So it may have caused a little bit of confusion today when we're talking about the exact same people, the Ninevites, but today, instead of saving the Ninevites, God is judging them. We're in the prophet Nahum, and, and this is a, a short prophetic book. It's only three chapters. You could read it all in just one sitting. And it's easy to grasp the theme of the book Nahum because there is only one theme in the entire book. For three chapters, we talk about and we hear about the coming judgment of Nineveh. God's wrath. God's anger towards this city, God's promise that he is going to destroy this city, which just a book earlier, he went to great effort to save. So understandably, this could cause some confusion. How does God really feel about Nineveh? Does he want them saved? Or does he want them judged? The answer, of course, is both. God wants the city of Nineveh to be saved. He desires the city and the people of Nineveh to be saved. But he doesn't want it so much that he will compromise his righteousness. God wants the city of Nineveh saved. He wants every single person there Saved and free and at complete liberty, but he doesn't want it so much that he will let them be unrighteous. So does this mean God is a loving God or an angry, judgmental God? Which one is stronger in him? Now make no mistake, God is a loving God. He gets angry, but he is a loving God. It says in Scripture, God is love. Identifies Him with love itself. It never says God is anger. But it does say God gets angry. Just like all of you, like Nell was talking about, all of us at one point do get angry, but hopefully we are not anger. And that is not the defining characteristic of our personality. But we go back to it. I mean, if God is so loving then how can he get so angry? How can he get so judgmental to the point where he is going to destroy an entire city? This goes back to our confusion about love. Now, if the human compared to the divine understanding of exactly what love is and what it entails. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis said a lot of our confusions about God and how he acts, especially towards us, a lot of our confusion goes back to a misunderstanding of what it means to be 
a father. See, the, the most common name that we use to describe God is our heavenly father. And a lot of our confusion about God goes back to our confusion about who a father is and what a father does. See, our father is the one that set the model for all fatherhood. And all of us, good or bad fathers, have flawed fathers. And we have a 21st century way of looking at what a father does and what his role is in life. And frankly, in the 21st century, it's a very, very small role. But it's a lot different than the way the Jews use the word father or the way Jesus used the word father. What C.S. Lewis said is, is for us in our 21st and 20th century thinking, when we say our father in heaven, what we really mean is our grandfather in heaven. And that's the image that we portray. This, uh, this older man, kind of drowsy up there in the sky, who just loves to see young people have a good time. He's very indulgent. You do all these mistakes, and oh, don't worry about that. Here's some candy. I just want you to see you enjoy yourself. Here, here's a Mercedes. Here's a lake house. Just enjoy. I just want to see you be happy. Just enjoy yourself. And that's this image we end up getting of God is this, 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 this drowsy, distant old man who just wants you to have a good time. Just have fun. But that's not what the Bible meant when they used the word father. And that's not, certainly not the picture Jesus had in his mind when he used the word father. He was speaking in Roman Judea. And in the Roman world, the father was called the paterfamilias, which literally means father of the family. And this father had absolute power over his family. And I mean absolute power, even life and death. That a Roman father could in some circumstances actually kill his children and not be prosecuted by the law. That was the kind of power that the Roman father had when Jesus talked about our father in heaven. Now, the reason why this Roman father had so much power, it doesn't have as much to do with establishing this dominant patriarchy as it does with the fact that the Roman father was responsible for how his family behaved. Whatever his family did, good or bad, it all went back to the father. If the children were good, upstanding citizens and did courageous things, it was because the father raised them right and it was an honor to the father. But if the children were criminals or cowards or did shameful things, it was also considered the father's fault. And it brought shame back onto the father. Now, I don't know what your idea of father is. I don't know what your idea of the 21st century role of the father is. And I don't know the particulars of, of your upbringing that influenced your image of the father. But when we say God our Father, we're not talking about a father who is absent. We're not talking about a father who is distant. We're not talking about a father who is distracted. We're not talking about a father who is too busy for you. And we're definitely not talking about a let's just have fun kind of dad. And we're definitely not talking about a grandfather in heaven who just wants to see you have a good time. God, our Heavenly Father, is very invested and very concerned about your true welfare. 
Now, when I say true welfare, it has nothing to do with your money or your security or your popularity or even your happiness. When I say God is concerned with your true welfare, what he's concerned with is the value of your soul. It's the value of your soul that he's concerned with more than anything else. The, the temper of your integrity, the gold and the silver that is your immortal spirit. That is what he is concerned with. Jesus asked a question of his disciples. He says, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? That's how valuable Jesus saw the soul. He says, we can compare it to the whole world with one soul. You can have the whole world or you can have your one soul and that one soul is more valuable. More valuable than the whole world. He says, think you can have whatever, whatever you have, it doesn't matter if you have everything, even, even happiness, if you're not a good person. What does it matter if you have all wealth and you don't have integrity? What does it matter if you have all power at your fingertips, but you don't have goodness? What does it matter if you have everything the world has to offer, but you don't have righteousness? These are the things that concern God. He's not so concerned with your, your worldly or material success. He's concerned with what kind of person are you turning into? So, so we read these words from Nahum. And it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And we have to ask, why is he so wrathful? Why is he so smiting sometimes? Why did he have all of this vengeance left for the Ninevites? Have we ever thought to consider Maybe he does this because he loves the Ninevites. That is why he was so angry. That is why he was so wrathful. It's because he loved them too much to allow them to be wicked. And if you read the rest of Nahum, we find out they really were wicked. They're doing every single evil you could think of under the sun. And the, the very last verse that the prophet gives us the whole book of Nahum, his last verse, he's, he asks, who hasn't been hurt by you? He says that to Nineveh. Who hasn't been hurt by you? You've hurt everybody around you. And yes, we see God's wrath here. But I think it's because he loves them too much to let them continue to do this. And he loves everyone too much to allow the pain and suffering that Nineveh has caused to the world around them. So everybody knows me. You know, I got, most of y'all know I got four kids. I got three boys and a girl. And our girl was the last child that we had. It's our youngest. And if you've seen me interact with her, you probably know that I, I tend to dote on her a little bit. She's my little girl and she's, she's the baby. And, and my wife will tell you that I don't discipline her near as harshly as I do the boys. Now, I think I discipline her just the same as the boys. And uh, my wife's not here to contradict me, so you just have to believe me about that. <laughs> right? But I am going to be honest with you. 
there is a conflict in me with all my kids, but especially concerning my youngest and my only girl. And I'll be honest about the conflict that I have is that it makes me very happy to see her happy. That's one of the, the greatest joys in my life now is, is seeing my daughter happy. And like I said, it's true for all of my kids. But I want to, and, and it's great when I can do something that makes her happy. It brings a lot of joy to my heart. But there's times that I have to remind myself that my biggest job as a parent is not to make her happy now, but to give her the tools and the knowledge so that she can be a good person for her entire life. And that means not just teaching her right from wrong, but also imposing a discipline upon her life today to help her curb some of her bad instincts. And we all have bad instincts that we need to curb. But also help her to develop the self-discipline that she can use for the rest of her life. And if I love her, if I really love her, then I will do this for her. But is, is it love to make somebody happy? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We try to make other people happy out of an instinct of love. To want to see happiness for another person is a form of love. To, to work for the happiness of another person is definitely 100% a form of love. But a deeper love deeper and more profound love is to work for another person's goodness. That deeper and that greater, more divine love is to want to see that person we love become strong and wise and honest and truthful and righteous. I believe 100% that God likes to see you happy. I think God loves when you're happy. He enjoys it when he sees you happy, but not if it is at the cost of your righteousness. And that means exactly what you think it means. God does want to see you happy, but not if it means that you compromise your righteousness. Because it means everything to God that you are good. It means everything to God that you are righteous because after all, when you're being righteous, you're being just like Him. When we are being righteous, we are, those are the ways that we, that we imitate our Heavenly Father. Those are the ways that we become like Him. And quite frankly, God loves you too much to let you be anything else but like him. He loves you so much that he even sent his son, that he even sent Christ to die on your behalf so that you might become righteous. He shed his blood so you can be more like him. When I was a child, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we shall see face to face. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in his famous sermon on love. It's the perfect words to describe it because it describes the confusion that we often have 
about love. When I was a child, I thought like a child, and I couldn't recognize the depth of my parents' love. But as an adult and a parent myself, I realize today how much they did because they loved me. And today, I see in a glass darkly. And much of what God does to me today seems judgment and anger and wrath and sometimes just pointless discipline. One day we will see face to face. One day we will realize that all God did for us was the work of a loving God who will not leave us alone until we can call ourselves His true children. That is the work of a loving God. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.